Support for this podcast comes from San Francisco International Airport. At SFO, you can discover award-winning flavors and unique shops all before takeoff. Learn more about what's at SFO at flysfo.com. Hi there. I'm Randa Fattah from ThruLine. If you're listening to this podcast, you know that KQED produces exceptional storytelling that keeps you informed, inspired, and entertained. Their podcasts cover issues from your neighborhood to the entire country and everything in between. Support this work today. You can help us continue to bring quality podcasts to your ears. Just head to donate.kqed.org podcast. That's donate.kqed.org podcast. From KQED. From KQED in San Francisco, I'm Mina Kim. Coming up on Forum, one in four members of Gen Z wants to become a social media influencer, according to a poll by Higher Visibility. That's even as older generations often malign content creators as self-obsessed or fake celebrities. But to dismiss influencers is to dismiss an industry that has been amassing significant cultural and economic power for decades, says Washington Post columnist Taylor Lorenz, who documents the rise of the influencer industry in her new book, Extremely Online, centering not the tech and social media platform founders, but the users who shape them. Who are the influencers you follow? Join us. Welcome to Forum. I'm Mina Kim. Most histories of social media focus on individual companies or their eccentric inventors or even early investors. In Taylor Lorenz's new book, Extremely Online, it's the users of these platforms who get their due. The content creators, the influencers, the bloggers. Tech founders may control the source code. But users shape the product, writes Lorenz. And as we look back this hour on the history of Internet power users from Y2K bloggers to TikTok influencers and how they shaped and changed social media, we also see how they shaped and changed our culture. Taylor Lorenz is a columnist for The Washington Post. Welcome to Forum. Thank you so much for having me. Really glad to have you. You know, your book opens in the late 90s when blogs were starting to be a thing. And just reading about that, it was amazing to me to think back on that time and also how novel blogs were when they started. Yes, yes. Isn't it crazy? It really, yeah, it was a while ago, but it was it was really transformative. Yeah, because at that time, to be able to get your thoughts out there, your opinions, even to aggregate, you know, information, you had to go through, I think what you describe as legacy gatekeepers. Yes, absolutely. Um, so, um, you know, you used to have to go through, you know, uh, the traditional media or traditional Hollywood, the entertainment ecosystem or media ecosystem in order to reach an audience. Um, and so you had this kind of barrier in between regular people, um, reaching people at scale. Now, of course, anybody can go viral and, and reach an audience of millions um, without the help of traditional entertainment or media. So in the beginning, that space was dominated by males sort of talking about tech and about politics. Talk about what happened when women started getting into the space, Taylor. Yeah. Um, so, you know, yeah, some of the earliest uh, tech blogs were um, were 
were or some of the earliest blogs were tech and politics blogs. Um, but in the early 2000s, women, um, specifically sort of Gen X mothers, who felt like the traditional women's media wasn't really speaking to them, um, started to develop personalities online and um, kind of start blogs, really cataloging their life. Um, a lot of them pseudonymously, um, but they developed these cult fandoms and um, and uh, really started to ha- have economic power. Um, Heather Armstrong, one of the most famous mommy bloggers, um, actually added ads to her website in 2004, and it totally revolutionized the industry. What were they doing with these blogs that you think really made mommy blogs in particular, take hold? Yeah. I mean, they were really breaking barriers. Um, It's hard to remember, but um, back in the day, it was just women's media was super, it was super um, limiting. Like it was just, it was this sort of like very um, sanitized version of motherhood almost, you know, where you couldn't really um, you couldn't really be honest about motherhood. It was like very patriarchal and mommy bloggers really broke down barriers and were really open about the struggles of motherhood. They normalized things like postpartum depression and struggling to breastfeed and not always loving your husband and things like that, um, that weren't really talked about in traditional media at the time and really resonated with, I think, a lot of young women. So would you say that they were influencers? Yeah, they were they they founded that the whole influencer world. I mean, they were like the original influencers. Which is so interesting because we associate that term almost exclusively with Gen Z. Uh, some people do. Before it was associated with Gen Z, it was very very heavily uh, associated with with millennials. Um but my book sort of talks about um how it started with Gen X, actually. Um, but yeah, yeah, I think people think I think because of TikTok maybe, they they think that TikTok is a very like Gen Z dominated mm, platform, um, yeah. maybe. And so, yeah, people, I mean, it really also, I think uh, it's due to the pandemic. Um, people, this industry has been massive and, and culturally relevant for years, but um, I think a lot of traditional media wasn't really covering it until the pandemic. And as you alluded to, they started to monetize, like they realized that they were getting a lot of eyeballs on their blogs and that this had untapped economic power. Can you describe sort of that transition and why it felt so fraught to these mommy bloggers initially? Yeah. Uh, well, the it was really hard because, you know, of course, other bloggers were monetizing fine. But when mothers did it, they were just villainized. Um, you know, they were accused of... Uh, just exploiting their children. And even though a lot of them didn't even talk that much about their kids, it was more about sort of their experiences, mothers, um, just their personal inner lives. Um, and yeah, they were just lambasted um, and and people, people said their children should be taken away and all of this horrible stuff um, just to, because they wanted to be compensated for their creative work. It's crazy. And why do you think that is? What were some of the things, the forces that were driving that kind of backlash? Yeah, well, it was, I mean, 100% misogyny. It's its why even women today are villainized constantly on the internet and people don't take the content creator world seriously. Um, it, it's because it's a very female-dominated industry and it was built and has is, is been primarily run by women. Well, I think your point about how powerful they were in cultivating the kind of models that content creators would use for decades, um, in the decades that followed them, was such a great and eye-opening realization for me. A, that 
sort of Gen Xers like me were <laughs> could be considered the first influencers, but then also just the power um, of these women bloggers who were just trying to be honest and it sounds like really create points of connection for people really initially, not, yeah. not to monetize, you know? Yeah, definitely. Um, yeah. I mean, I think it, it was, it was initially just about connection and about those personal bonds and they were looking for community and then they sort of started to get economic power once they monetized, but that wasn't ever what they were going into it for. We're talking with Taylor Lorenz, a columnist covering technology and online culture for The Washington Post, who has a new book called Extremely Online, The Untold Story of Fame, Influence, and Power on the Internet. And I want you, our listeners, if you want to join the conversation with your questions or comments, what questions do you have about the rise of the influencer industry, its history? Who are content creators that you follow or or what do you turn to influencers for? You can email forum at kqed.org. Find us on Twitter, Facebook, Instagram, Discord. We're at KQED Forum. You can call us at 866-733-6786, I love that you focus on users and you you say it's the untold story. Why have we really not focused on the power of users in terms of shaping the internet culture that we have today? Because um, (laughs) I think in America, we're obsessed with these stories of tech founders. Um, It's the social network kind of view of social media where, I mean, look at all the focus on Elon, right? Like it's just people want to understand the rise of these social platforms through these powerful Silicon Valley men. Um, And that's just really not a complete version of the story. And in fact, most of these men had no idea what they're doing and still have no idea what they're doing. And um, they've, the ones that are really responsive to their user bases, I think have, have seen the most success. Twitter is such a good example of that. Your description of Twitter as uh, these men who really probably didn't know and at least didn't explicitly state any real knowledge of how powerful that platform could be. I love how you quote them as saying, Twitter is for staying in touch and keeping up with friends, no matter where you are or what you're doing. (laughs) They just didn't understand what it would be at all or what people wanted out of it. Um, and same thing with YouTube. I mean, YouTube started as a dating platform um, until they realized <laughs> that's not what people wanted to use YouTube for. Um, and so I think you see time and time again, it's just this like relationship between the platforms and the users. But the user side and specifically the story of sort of power users, which are influencers, they're essentially just power users of these platforms. It's just ignored and it's de- and it's derided. And, and nobody, especially in Silicon Valley, even today, I mean, the tech press is so heavily focused on just kind of the, 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 um, I don't want to say the business side, cause there's a huge business of influencing as well, but like, you know, the, yeah, just the, it's, it's a very tech founder, great founder vision sort of, of, of social media and the tech landscape. Yeah. So, so can you describe a couple of the things that, um, you really get into in the book in terms of how Twitter users showed the company that it could be so much more than what the founders imagined. Um, you talk about, you know, the earthquake, and then you talk about the miracle on the Hudson. Sort of describe what happened if you could. Yeah. So, I mean, really early on, um, Twitter, people, I, you know, basically an earthquake happened and um, people started, started to share news of the earthquake and communicate about it. 
through Twitter. And that was sort of one of the earliest examples of real-time news breaking on Twitter. Um, and then same thing with the miracle on the Hudson, which is when the plane landed on the Hudson River. That news actually broke on Twitter far before it got on the mainstream media. Um, it was actually a rescuer, I believe, that tweeted about it. Um, and so, you know, there just wasn't, previous to that, there wasn't a really a way for average users to reach people at scale, right? You could take a picture and maybe put it on your blog if you had one, but people probably wouldn't see it in real time. Um, and so you sort of just started to see Twitter become this place for news and real-time information and people building big audiences around, yeah, engaging engaging with people. And was it really users who who basically created the model of hashtags and at symbols? And, yeah. And, yeah, like, amazing, right? <laughs> Yeah, that too. I mean, the hashtag, actually, Twitter didn't really initially like it. They thought it was messy and they didn't, they were like, why do people want this? And well, I don't think we should be using this. And actually, Chris Messina, who was just a power user of Twitter, um, invented it and, and thought, well, this is actually just a good way to sort of follow specific topics. And um, now it's a famous thing today. And same thing with the ad symbol. People were trying to figure out, well, how do I reach, how do I communicate with different people? And, and the ad symbol was a protocol from email, obviously, but people started to use it on social media suddenly. Um, I mean, everything, even the, the concept of reblogging and resharing content was um, actually invented by this man, Jonah Peretti, who went on to found BuzzFeed. So um, it's just, you know, it's it's all kind of interesting how it's actually not these Silicon Valley tech geniuses that invented a lot of this stuff. It kind of maybe they started with a little piece of technology, but it's really what people did with the technology that um, that made it what it is today for better yeah. or worse. Yeah, for better or worse, and we'll get into both of those. But yeah, we're learning we're learning what these users did through Taylor Lorenz's book, Extremely Online. Uh, it's a story about the influence of users, the influence of influencers on the social media platforms so many of us use, and also a social history, as Lorenz describes it, of social media. Stay with us for more after the break. You're listening to Forum. I'm Mina Kim. Support for Forum comes from San Francisco Opera. Set 10 years after a school shooting, the critically acclaimed opera Innocence takes us into a complex emotional journey where our understanding of innocence and guilt is constantly upended. Kaya Sariajo's ethereal score collapses the past into the present as a community of survivors grapple with how to move forward. Don't miss the highly anticipated American premiere of Innocence, June 1st through 21st. Learn more at sfopera.com. We've all got those parts of our house where the internet just won't go. Well, if you had wall-to-wall Wi-Fi from Xfinity, you could worry less about dead spots. Because with wall-to-wall Wi-Fi from Xfinity, you get fast speeds, reliable connection in every room, and power for all of your devices, even when everyone's online. That's wall-to-wall Wi-Fi only with Xfinity. Restrictions apply. Not available in all areas. Actual speeds vary. Welcome back to Forum. I'm Mina Kim. 
We're talking about the influence of influencers with Taylor Lorenz, a columnist who covers technology and online culture for The Washington Post. Taylor's written a book called Extremely Online, The Untold Story of Fame, Influence, and Power on the Internet that really looks at the way that users shaped the social media platforms that we use. And you, our listeners, can join the conversation. Are you or do you aspire to be an influencer or does someone you know do as well? What are the pros and cons of being an influencer? today? Who are the influencers you follow or the content creators that you follow? What's your niche on social media? What worries or excites you about the future of social media and of the influencer industry? You can email your thoughts or questions to forum at kqed.org. You can find us on our social channels at Facebook, Instagram, Discord, Twitter, at KQED Forum. You can call us at 866-733-6786, 866-733-6786. Your comment about YouTube starting as a dating platform got a big reaction in, in the studio. Do you want to describe a little bit about the beginnings of YouTube and how they saw it as that initially? Yeah, YouTube was initially built to be this kind of video dating site, um, which is very funny because I don't think many people, I mean, even now it's hard to get people to do something, sort of like create videos uh, online, although everyone sort of does it to an extent, but it was really ahead of its time. I mean, at the time it was quite hard to create videos. You had to have a webcam or upload videos and um, it required a little bit more savvy. Um, but yeah, and, and, but very quickly people, they realized it was made more sense to have it as sort of like a place to share up, you know, people upload videos and people started uploading their family videos and just a broader and broader variety of content. A lot of it was early pirated content as well from, uh, TV, which caused a lot of headaches for YouTube. Um, right. But yeah, it's just sort of funny to look back at these origins. I mean, let's not forget that Facebook started as a hot or not, you know, <laughs> website. A common theme in Extremely Online is the constant underestimation or misconception by founders of how users would use their inventions or even of the power of that platform that users really unleashed. And I want to ask you if you feel like the same thing is still happening today with influencers, that we are underestimating um, just the power that they hold to to shape how we interact in the world. Yes. I mean, influencers are fully, this is the new media ecosystem. This is the true digital media uh, sort of revolution, I guess you could say. Um, Not, you know, there are positives and there are negatives, but this is the media landscape that we live in today. And I think a lot of people um, don't realize that. They just don't realize how much of an impact this is having on our world, not just our media diets for news and entertainment, but also politics and business and sports and culture and really everything. And if you say positives and negatives, but if you were to to focus on the positives, what do you think are sort of the, I don't know, the what they're in, unleashing that is the unmitigated good part of it? Yeah. Well, I mean, I would say a huge amount of influencers are, again, women, LGBTQ people, people of color, um, using the internet to really break through um, to to audiences online um, that in a way that traditional media never could. You know, a lot of these people would be excluded from traditional media institutions. Their narratives were never heard in traditional media. Um, even now, you know, traditional media doesn't necessarily represent 
they don't serve every single niche market. It's just not their business model, even if they wanted to. Um, and that's true, actually, not just for media, but for everything. I mean, I give the example in my book of beauty vloggers, but beauty vloggers um, started out, it was a lot of women of color that, that built a lot of the beauty vlogging industry. And they were you know, serving markets that were underserved by the traditional makeup industry, which focused on sort of like a very limited view of skin tone or range of skin tones and sort of only doing makeup tutorials for sort of Western style faces. And so you saw, saw people like Michelle Vaughn Fawn go really viral for her like hooded eye tutorials and things like that, where suddenly people that didn't have any media kind of tailored for them um, had media that really speaks to them. And that's can be really powerful. Yeah, really powerful. And now we see stats like when I mentioned the billboard, where one in four, one in five members of Gen Z, Gen Z say they want to be a social media influencer. When you hear that, what is your reaction, Taylor? Oh, I think um, I, I, I've talked to so many people about why that is. It's because we have absolutely no uh, social safety net in this country. And so online attention is really the most valuable form of currency today. Kids rightly understand that our economic system is, is completely broken and skewed and we have record wealth inequality, no health care. And so people think, well, okay, if I have attention online and if I can get an online following, that will sort of protect me um, in some way. Because again, this country itself offers no protection or guarantee and you can end up, you know, destitute very easily. I did a story recently where I went to a camp full of kids um, that were learning how to be YouTubers over the summer. There's all these summer camps now that teach kids to be YouTubers. And um, I asked the kids, you know, why, what do you, what do you want? And they said, well, if I have followers online and my parents lose their house, my followers will be able to help them, you know, get a new house. Or if something happened, my mom has been very sick and we don't have the money to pay for her medical bills. And so if I get following online, I can do a GoFundMe and I'll have thousands of people can contribute and my mom will get better. That's that. These are the things at the root of it. And you see adults who are so sort of uneducated about this world say things like, oh, well, they just want fame and stuff. And sure, of course, some kids want the the lifestyle, you know, just the way kids aspire to be sports athletes or celebrities. But the core root of it, when you really get down to it, is what they want is economic stability. And that is something that because of the systems in our country right now, a lot of young people don't have. Yeah. But but it feels like it's such a vulnerable economic market or job generally. It's as well. the, the sad yeah. thing is is they've been they've been set, fed a bunch of lies. I mean, these companies what they push it's the same lie of the American dream. We know that it's not true that you know everyone can make it in America, right? There's a lot of people that have a lot of um, systemic sort of issues against them, whether it's poverty or race or things like that. The same is true on the internet. Not everyone can make it. It's a false. It's a false dream. And so kids, most kids will not make it. Um, I don't think it's horrible for them to pursue it. I mean, it's just if you go in clear eyed and I think, you know, at least your child will learn video editing and, and marketing and a lot of skills that actually might end up making them, you know, uh, might end up helping them get a job someday. But I would love a world where people don't have to be, you know, famous online to just get their basic needs met. I think that's what's kind of dystopian about all of it. Yeah. Could you actually just describe how an influencer career kind of works? Um, just, yeah. just like a high level description of it. 
you're basically running your own little media company. It's yeah. a, it's you're you become an entrepreneur and you have your own little media startup. And so you start to create content. Sometimes it's about yourself. Sometimes it's about an interest and uh, or something else. You know, genre of content, home goods. Uh, you know, the, there's influencers for literally everything. Um, and you, yeah, you build this little media company and and you monetize through product launches, sponsored content, uh, subscriptions. Um, you know. Uh, Patreon type things. Uh, Patreon is a platform that allows people to give recurring revenue. Um, there's a whole mix of, of ways that people monetize merchandise sales, uh, lots of different things, but you're essentially, yeah. you're running a media company. Yep. Yeah. You're essentially running, running a business. Um, let me turn to some callers. Barbara in Nevada is on the line. Barbara, what's on your mind? Hi, how are you? Glad to Great. be on. I am um, interesting what she just said, because I'm a 60 plus solo nomad who retired and I don't have a permanent home. And so this whole learning about how to create my brand, I have a brand, but how to use it on all of these channels is sort of my new job. Mm-hmm. And it's been really wonderful creating a YouTube channel. I had a blog, um, as your guest had said, back in the 90s when I was in philanthropy and a podcast. So now I've shifted it all in retirement, sharing with 60 plus retired and travelers who may not have massive budgets, but want to travel. And so I share with them how I do that. And it's a process of learning. Like, how does the algorithm work? And how do I find my audience? And how does my audience find me? It's been a a real steep learning curve, but a fabulous thing to share sort of what I'm doing while I'm traveling full time. Hmm. Well, that's incredible. Yeah, I'm really glad you're enjoying doing it, Barbara. And also, I think it underscores what you were saying Taylor earlier about just finding finding communities that may be kind of specific, right? Or niche or a certain age group or a certain stage in life and a certain budget, right? And you want to be able to do things and you can find because of this huge explosion of influencers, people who may be speaking to your needs. A hundred percent. But I think one of the things that I also think is interesting is you do touch a little bit on why you think we like, follow, and subscribe to influencers. Do you think at its core, it's connection? Or are there other things about our culture and who we are even (laughs) that contributes to that? Yeah. um, Well, I think we all want media that resonates with us. We want media that's tailored to us and interesting to us and, and, um, you know, there's just an increasingly amount of that content. We also want media delivered to us in the formats that we can can sort of consume it most easily. And that's today in mobile, you know, mobile first way, whether it's newsletters you can read on your phone uh, or a TikTok video, you know, you want it, you want it engaging and easily consumable. Um, So I think that's kind of what what gravitates to people. And then, of course, there's the parasocial relationship aspect of it, too, where I think in today's personality-driven media ecosystem, a lot of people feel a deep connection, you know, with these people that they follow, um, where they really sort of start to like them and and feel sort of almost part of their lives um, by following them. And so I think that also is is compelling. Yeah. Where... Are the economics of this going? We talked a little bit about the vulnerability for users themselves, but there's a stat where the market share, the, the value could be that you share in your book, half a trillion dollars in the next, what, by 2027 or so? 
Yeah, that's what Goldman Sachs predicted. Um, and of course, that's only a fraction of the industry too, because you're not really counting the businesses that these influencers are founding, um, which are now national brands. I mean, like, look at, for instance, Logan Paul's Prime Seltzer, which is a really popular thing, or the Nelk Boys, which are a YouTube group, are opening their new line of gyms uh, across America. So you're just, you know, you're sort of this world that we live in, that, you know, brands that you might be buying at Target or Walmart, you know, maybe you pick up a Chamberlain coffee, uh, you know, coffee mix or something, and you don't realize that's actually made by Emma Chamberlain, a huge YouTuber. Right, right. Well, this listener writes, given how we've seen users changing the use of internet tools from what the founders anticipated, I think this has a certain portent for what artificial intelligence may do. Despite the best intentions of developers and creators of these tools, it will ultimately be up to the users to determine what our world looks like as we incorporate AI into our lives. Your thoughts, Taylor? Yeah, I think AI, I mean, if you think about it, social media, the big revolution of social media is lowering the barrier to content creation. And that's what AI, I think, is going to do even more significantly. Yeah. Do you, are there things that we're already seeing in terms of the way that users are doing AI that even as the founders say, oh, you know, we're going to try to put all these safeguards on it, um, point us in directions um, that, that these creators may not have intended? Yeah, exactly. I think, I mean, I think that exactly, I think we'll see what becomes of AI, but it's going to be a lot more than what the founders probably think about. <laughs> Let me go to caller Michael in San Jose. Hi, Michael, you're on. Hi there. Um, I've always wondered when I interact with influencers on the internet, I often feel like they're actually just the, the soulless face of a corporation that I don't know about. Mm. If I'm, you know, like reading a, a, a recipe or something and everything's really polished. And I think like, this can't be one person. And I'm curious how true that intuition is. Are these people really, you know, single person media businesses? Or are there big businesses behind the scenes running a lot of these accounts? Michael, thanks. Michael, you bring up such a good point, because they yes. are increasingly big businesses. Um, uh, it is um, basically, um, you know, it, it depends on the content creator. Some of it, it is actually really impressive what people can do um, with just, you know, a phone. Um, but also, you know, uh, Mr. Beast, for instance, employs, I believe, hundreds of people. You know, he's one of the biggest YouTubers. So it really depends. Um, but a lot of people do end up hiring uh, assistants and videographers and stuff like that to help them. There was this whole culture of sort of like stealth sponsorship or, or <laughs> they... The creators themselves and even the companies themselves didn't want people to know that they were sponsored. And so there was this sense of like, oh, am I being fed ads in a way that um, without me really knowing it because it's not being explicitly stated? I wonder if you could talk a little bit about that history and, and how the federal government got involved, especially as it relates to Instagram. Yeah. Um, it, yeah. It's just, um, there was this uh, moment in Instagram. Uh, well, in 2017, when the, when the FTC cracked down on sponsored content, specifically on Instagram, um, and it really had the, the sort of an unintended effect of actually making SpawnCon aspirational. Um, and so, because people suddenly all had to disclose their sponsored content, people were like, whoa, it's actually really cool that you're working with these big brands, you know? Um, and I think ever since then, the federal government has really struggled how to uh, how to manage this industry. Why were um, they so... Yeah, go ahead. Sorry. 
they just don't understand. I mean, I think a lot of people in, in the government can barely turn their computer on, unfortunately. You know, they're just not, this is not their world. And so they don't understand the nuances of it and they constantly dismiss it. I mean, the Bureau of Bureau of Labor and Statistics, I believe it is, uh, doesn't even count this as work. You know, it doesn't even track the amount of workers in this industry, uh, which is wild because this is a massive transformational industry. Why were creators so concerned about revealing that they were sponsored? Well, they were initially, initially there was a concern that people would, they would get backlash. You know, it's, it's back to the Heather Armstrong stuff that happened in 2004. It's like, people were like, oh, well, we're, everyone's going to hate us or realize how much of our stuff is backed by brands. And we don't want to reveal that because it would make it, you know, people would get mad or tell us that we're selling out. Um, But actually, yeah, the opposite happened. The opposite happened. (laughs) As you were saying, people were like, wow, I had no idea that, you know, big companies saw your content that they were supporting you and it it even made them like more special. It was like a point of celebration even for me. Yeah. A hundred percent. Um it basically became this um this uh this kind of like aspirational thing where where the bigger the brand deal, the more people were like, oh my God, this is amazing. Da 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 like we, you know, we love it. <laughs> but then it even spawned like people pretending to be sponsored. <laughs> Yeah, exactly. People pretended to have brand sponsorships with people that they did not. So I guess the the there's both like the celebration of that and the funny kind of twist on that. But also at the same time, it always feels like whenever I, I guess I wonder what a measure of success is for influencers now. Is it is it that like and if that is that always raises a whole bunch of other questions, right, in terms of potentially being problematic if it's if the measure of success is sponsorships and, and monetization? Well, I think the measure of success in this country has always been economic success and money. And I mean, I think it just shows how kind of, uh, you know, that's just, that's, this is sort of like the natural conclusion of that, right? Like, I mean, people have always viewed financial success as success in America. Um, and I think there used to be this, Sort of backlash that or yeah like a concept of selling out and now i think it's everyone realizes like look just get money when you can because everything is it's a very precarious system you know well this listener writes kids spend a lot of time on social media we need to inform kids about real world jobs there are lots that pay we need plumbers doctors teachers nurses yes. many more we're but talking the thing about is that, yeah mm-hmm. go ahead the thing you is just that, have 10 the, seconds and then we can continue the thought oh yeah the break. I would just say those jobs are also very unstable. Yes. You know, <laughs> that's the problem. <laughs> we'll have more with Taylor Lorenz. Stay with us. This is Forum. Support for Forum comes from San Francisco Opera. Set 10 years after a school shooting, the critically acclaimed opera Innocence takes us into a complex emotional journey where our understanding of innocence and guilt is constantly upended. Kaya Sariajo's ethereal score collapses the past into the present as a community of survivors grapple with how to move forward. Don't miss the highly anticipated American premiere of Innocence, June 1st through 21st. Learn more at sfopera.com. We've all got those parts of our house where the internet just won't go. 
Well, if you had wall-to-wall Wi-Fi from Xfinity, you could worry less about dead spots. Because with wall-to-wall Wi-Fi from Xfinity, you get fast speeds, reliable connection in every room, and power for all of your devices, even when everyone's online. That's wall-to-wall Wi-Fi only with Xfinity. Restrictions apply. Not available in all areas. Actual speeds vary. You're listening to Forum. I'm Mina Kim. I'm talking with Taylor Lorenz, a columnist who covers technology and online culture for The Washington Post. And we're talking about the influence of influencers on social media and on us, something Taylor documents in her new book, Extremely Online, the untold story of fame, influence, and power on the internet. What are your questions about that untold story? Who are the influencers you turn to? What worries or excites you about the future of the influencer industry? You can email forum at kqed.org, call us at 866-733-6786, or find us on our social channels on Discord, Facebook, Instagram, or Twitter. And the sister writes, how do you define influencer? I think of influencers as people who are paid by the companies whose products the influencers promote. But is there a broader definition? Yeah, that's just a, I mean, that's just one way that, that influencers monetize. That's just a very small way that that's not even the main necessarily way that influencers monetize. It's totally dependent. I mean, these are media businesses, right? So um, just the way that not all traditional media businesses are built on advertising, although it is a sort of core form of monetization. Um, it's same with the influence industry. Of course, advertising is a core sort of way that that these influencers, that some influencers monetize, but some influencers only monetize through subscriptions or direct revenue. And a lot of them increasingly actually build their own products and launch their own products rather than advertise somebody else's products. That's much sort of like the much more popular thing to do these days. Um, You know, some people also do speaking gigs or they host live events or they have a show, you know, a web show that they do, or they, um, you know, that they subscription gate or pay gate. Um, you know, there's just this, that they sell merch, you know, like there's, there's so many, they charge for shout outs. Um, they charge, they basically do things like, uh, you know, go on cameo. Um, there's so many ways to monetize as a content creator these days. Yeah. And we've talked about the economic power or the p- potential of the economic power that influencers can hold and, and also about the cultural power. There is this thread through your book though, um, Taylor, that you can feel, which is just this sense that influencers, users, especially at first, were treated with contempt, either by the companies, the tech companies whose products they were using, or or the mainstream media industry, who you describe time and time again as sort of missing the boat on what users were doing in terms of shaping uh, stories and events that were news newsworthy. Can you talk a little bit about that? First, why companies would often sort of treat these users with contempt? Well, um, you know, because a lot of platform founders, um, I mean, some of it is just sort of like ego and control. And I mean, look at what Elon Musk is doing in Twitter, right? Like he, no one has more contempt for his user base, I would argue, than Elon Musk right now. Uh, in the sense that they have a vision for how they want their platforms to be used and who these platforms are built for. And social products are not that way. You cannot control them in that way. I mean, you can certainly do certain things to sort of, but you can't force people to use your product that don't want to use your product, you know? So I think it's, um, yeah, it's a push and pull relationship, you know? Um, And I think that they both kind of exert pressure on each other. 
And then in terms of the mainstream media, I couldn't help but wonder if the way that users, content creators, influencers can be underestimated kind of mirrored your own experience as a journalist when you tried to cover internet culture at these sort of legacy institutions. What happened? Um, yeah, I mean, people just, I think, didn't understand what I was writing about. And, uh, you know, it's been very hard. I think also one thing that, that legacy media institutions struggle with is um, they don't know how to navigate these these sort of harassment campaigns. Um, and one thing that the content creator ecosystem, I talk about this um, event known as Gamergate, which was sort of this period in time when uh, the internet was being really weaponized viciously against women in video game journalism. And you see that happen all the time now, these exact same tactics, and in many cases, the exact same players, um, you know, driving hate um, uh, toward women and journalists uh, specifically. So, it, you know, I think a lot of media companies aren't prepared for that level of attention, um, and they don't know what to do. And they end up throwing their reporters under the bus because they don't know how to support them. This is happening across the industry, unfortunately, because I think it's a new media landscape and not all media executives understand how to navigate it well. Not all reporters do either. I certainly have you know, learned a lot myself. Yeah, that's true. When you say you've certainly learned a lot yourself, you certainly have been shy and it's kind of been pretty clear that you yourself have been the target of online hate. What has that been like and, and what kind of support have you gotten? It's been weird. Um, you know, I think that since the pandemic, a lot of this stuff has been politicized. And also you see that the content creator industry is increasingly politicized. You know, you see these media empires like Ben Shapiro's Daily Wire, which has built out an entire kind of far right um, ecosystem of content creators that push a very um, sort of disturbing agenda, uh, you know, very anti-democratic kind of uh political agenda. Um, and so I, I think that those people are increasingly shaping our politics. Um, you also have a lot of people in Congress that were, have huge bases of online support, such as Donald Trump and others. Um, so it's been weird, um, but it's, you know, I don't mind it. I'm a journalist. I can take it, but I have a lot of empathy for the younger journalists. Like I'm lucky because I built my brand before it all got really toxic, I guess. Um, and so at least I have a following that I can rely on. And it, you know, media companies will support me, but I think it's very hard for young women ent entering the industry because their career can be cut off before they even get started. Yeah. Do you think the the monetization pressures and the model that we have right now can incentivize more extreme content? Um, because Absolutely. it gets more. Absolutely. I mean, I think this is the big problem. Um, where you see these platforms reward extremism and misinformation and yeah, dangerous content. That is what gets the most eyeballs. And that is what a lot of influencers end up optimizing for. And I think this is part of what gives the, the influencer industry a bad rep it, because most people's exposure, if you know, is like, they're not thinking about the, the YouTube content creator that fixes bikes who you follow for your mountain biking recommendations. Like, even though those people are influencers, they're not the ones in the news every day. The ones that are really doing sort of getting involved in the news or that you see covered are the ones that are often doing the most extreme content, people like Alex Jones and others. So um, yeah, it's a, it's a huge problem. And I don't know that these tech companies are ever going to fix it because they love the engagement that these content creators bring to their platform. They can monetize it. Well, Ren asks, when it comes to influencers who don't have credentials, how do we make sure their information is accurate or fact check them? 
Uh, media literacy, basically. Um, and I think that's true for even places, you, you know, you should be critical of stuff that you read in the mainstream media too, right? Like every single outlet, and I say this as a journalist, uh, I totally believe in journalism, but there's a lot of stuff that's published in mainstream outlets that's also very dubious and, or it's an opinion piece that people read as a fact, you know? So I think it's really important for anybody to understand, um, the media that they're consuming and understand the media landscape. We have almost no media literacy in this country, which is what makes things very hard. So I think learning what's a reliable source and what we can trust um, would go a long way. And also if you have kids, oh my God, if you have kids, please teach them what's a reliable source and sort of how, you know, what, how to find good journalists and th things like that. Because I, I just saw a study that came out recently that said actually kids on TikTok are more likely to fall for misinformation than even boomers on Facebook. So um, it's really important, I think, to teach kids, yeah, how to vet sources. Listener Ariana writes, I'm a child therapist, and I had a 14-year-old client who, under COVID, said he wanted to be a YouTuber. His idea was to be one of these people who watches other people play video games. This is totally absurd to us adults, but I didn't tell him outright he shouldn't do it. But I did suggest he have a plan B in case that didn't work out. Good. That's good advice, um, because I think... As I mentioned earlier, you know, this is like, it's a very hard business. It's inherently precarious. Running a media company is hard. It's hard. And especially if you do it when you're young, you know, there's a lot of people that start these kind of businesses because, you know, some, for instance, um, you know, there's a lot of out of work chefs um, that, 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 you know, during uh, the early days of COVID when the restaurants were down, that they turned to Instagram and some of them built followings on YouTube. And now they're full-time chef content creators online and they share recipes with people things like that are amazing. But when you have young kids getting into this industry, you know, their per personalities and interests can change a lot from 18 to 25, you know? So, um, so yeah, I think it's really good to have a plan B in life generally, honestly, for everything. <laughs> right. Listeners, we're talking about what worries or excites you about the future of the influencer industry and you're sharing your thoughts on that. Also, if you are yourself considering or have tried to become an influencer, um, have aspirations to do so, if you're doing it now, what are the pros and cons of that existence? What content creators do you follow? What questions do you have about the rise of the influencer industry 866-733-6786, the number, email address, forum at kqed.org. We're at KQED Forum on our social channels. Jennifer on Discord writes, I think the draw towards influencing is the accessibility. As long as you have a device and internet access, you can do it. You definitely also talk about how just the invention of the hardware of the iPhone, you know, just suddenly untethered everything <laughs> from your desktop computer, and you could go out in the world and just take a video of or, or tweet about what you were doing, you know, removed from that room, right? There are just the, so many moments like that, Taylor, of these massive jolts in hardware and software development. Yeah, 100%. And I think we're seeing all of that accelerate more and more. You know, we increasingly live in this super tech-enabled world, and um, it's it's very overwhelming. I think just the, the pace of change that's happening lately is... It's very, it's very worrying. I think sometimes, you know, I think we're all embracing technology and we don't really know how it's going to affect us because it's all new, right? And um, sometimes by the time we realize what these tools have done to us, it's a little too late. Jenny writes, the influencer phenomenon is identical, I think, with the rideshare phenomenon. In each case, an amateur yes. replaced a professional with known qualifications. Influencers replaced editors cre curating an op-ed page. 
Uber and Lyft bump taxi drivers with years of experience. Do you think that's an apt comparison? I think that is spot on. Um, absolutely agree. I think there's so many parallels to the gig economy. And um, yeah, and I, and I think, again, we should think about the what a lot of gig economy workers want as well as a safety net. You know, um, gig economy workers and, and people in the creator economy, the influencer industry, you know, they, they do this app enabled work basically. And, um, they don't have things like healthcare or job security. And, um, I think all of that's very concerning. We're talking with Taylor Lorenz and let me remind listeners, you are listening to forum. I mean, Kim. David writes the ecosystem of influencers has severely diluted the richness of friends, music recommendations. All my friends send me links to the same influencers with the same videos on YouTube in earlier years, I would get very interesting and unique posts from friends with all kinds of musical tastes. Now I find that very diluted. There is also something that you talk about in your book, which is also just the the mental health issues that do end up arising for heavy content users, content creators, you know, people who feel just this pressure to constantly share their lives. Can you talk a little bit about that side of it, what you've been hearing among these creators about some of the challenges that they have felt with the kinds of demands that being an influencer has on them? Yeah, I mean, I think it's just very psychologically damaging and difficult to deal with. You have basically a lot of the benefits of, or you have a lot of the downsides of fame and almost none of the benefits. You know, you suddenly have this audience that you're beholden to that you need to cater to. And, you know, you're getting sometimes covered in the media because you have a, a fandom, right? But you can't mess up and, but you don't have the money and the infrastructure around you to help you handle that. And so I think it can be really hard and, um, and also just, you can't take time off. You cannot take time off. If you, you know, take a week off, you lose your spot in the algorithm and you kind of get your content is getting downranked and it's harder to perform. You have to kind of keep posting content to make money. And it's just very, it's, it's exhausting and it's difficult. And these platforms can go away tomorrow or they can rise and fall very quickly. It's just, it's very difficult. Yeah, there's this line where you say, we're all now deeply cognizant of our status, our metrics, our potential for micro fame or outright celebrity. Even if our goal isn't to be known to millions, we still fixate on the likes we get from friends or welcome new connections, even from people we hardly know. This phenomenon can inspire entrepreneurial fortunes, as well as nerve wracking anxiety. Have we almost reached a point where if we don't see it documented, it doesn't even feel real. Yeah. And I talk about this in my book too, um, how sort of the offline world is increasingly just this stage um, and for the place to sort of mine for content for the internet, which is our default reality. Well, Noelle on Discord writes, I love music producer and former music pro professor Rick Beto, a champion of Rock and roll, I don't know if I'm saying his name correctly, and <laughs> jazz. He has his What Makes This Song Great YouTube series where he teaches the importance of rock. He's been able to sell his music theory content to fund the channel and has been able to interview musicians like Sting, Joni Mitchell, and more. So we have really, I think, talked a lot about the downsides. But yet, you write, the people I met online who reached out and helped me through these dark days reaffirmed my faith in the internet and in technology. <laughs> 
Can you tell me about that a little bit, Taylor? Like, yeah, I mean, I I think I wrote that in my acknowledgments because um, <laughs> I don't put myself in my work very much. But um, yeah, you did. Yeah, I um, yeah, I. Uh, I just, you know, I think the internet is so bad and I totally understand the criticism and I think we should, you know, I'm grateful for all the million books we have on the misinformation and the dark sides of things, but it can also be really incredible. And I love that example that this, the listener just gave of like that music theory channel. And, you know, I think we all see examples of things like this on the internet where we see things that we're like, wow, man, I love that, you know, and that's something that probably wouldn't have had a life before the internet or wouldn't be, they wouldn't be able to monetize and scale it and reach so many people. So I just hope we can remember the good with the bad. I think no, nothing is always a hundred percent bad or good generally. I mean, especially with technological process. And I think we have the opportunity to build a better internet. Um, we just have to be, yeah, we just have to kind of work towards that. Yeah. Well, Marilee writes, I heard years ago that technology is used for only 5% of what is created. It is not until it gets into the creative brains of the unanticipated or unintentional public, it explodes into uses that were never intended or even imagined. Sadly, the uses can be both good and bad. The unintentional uses can become uncontrollable. So what is your overall message? What are sort of the, what is your call for people to learn from the last 20 years? Yeah. I mean, I want people to recognize that the internet can be very liberatory and amazing, but it can also be very dark. And I hope people especially take lessons about how the internet treated women and how women are just, you know, chewed up and spit out so often by the, the, the industry, like the legacy media industry, but also the the new media industry of the internet. And um, so I think we should recognize women's contributions to the internet. We should um, not write off these female driven industries like influencing that are, you know, become economic powerhouses. And I think we should build more reliable, less profit driven social platforms that allow for deeper connection and, um, you know, real positive, uh, I guess, interaction online instead of just, uh, you know, Facebook and Twitter and all these other apps that make us miserable. It also feels like you're telling users that we have a lot more power than we think. Yes, we do. We do. <laughs> well, Collectively. Yes. Thank you so much for talking about that with us today. Thank you. I really appreciate your time. Taylor Lorenz's book is Extremely Online, The Untold Story of Fame, Influence, and Power on the Internet. My thanks to our listeners. My thanks to Caroline Smith for producing today's segment. You have been listening to Forum. I'm Mina Kim. Funds for the production of KQED's Forum are provided by the John S. and James L. Knight Foundation, the Generosity Foundation, the Germanicos Foundation, and the Heising Simons Foundation. Support for Forum comes from San Francisco Opera. Set 10 years after a school shooting, the critically acclaimed opera Innocence takes us into a complex emotional journey where our understanding of innocence and guilt is constantly upended. Kaya Sariajo's ethereal score collapses the past into the present as a community of survivors grapple with how to move forward. Don't miss the highly anticipated American premiere of Innocence, June 1st through 21st. Learn more at sfopera.com.
We've all got those parts of our house where the internet just won't go. Well, if you had wall-to-wall Wi-Fi from Xfinity, you could worry less about dead spots. Because with wall-to-wall Wi-Fi from Xfinity, you get fast speeds, reliable connection in every room, and power for all of your devices, even when everyone's online. That's wall-to-wall Wi-Fi only with Xfinity. Restrictions apply. Not available in all areas. Actual speeds vary. All over the country, we need to improve reading in Wisconsin. Schools are changing the way they teach reading. I'm calling for a renewed focus on literacy. We have gotten this wrong in New York and all across the nation. And it's happening because of a podcast. I think your podcast has changed my life. And I'm going to share this podcast with everyone I meet. Sold a Story investigates how teaching kids to read went wrong. New episodes of Sold a Story are available now.